chapter 17, verse 22 says this. Now, while they were staying in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And the third day they will be raised up. he will be raised up. And they were exceedingly sorrowful. And when they had come to Capernaum, those who had received the temple tax came to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the temple tax? And he said, oh, Yes. And when he had come into the house, notice the house, that's in Capernaum, Jesus anticipated him, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take customs or taxes, from their sons or from strangers? And Peter said to him, from strangers. And he said, so the sons are free. Nevertheless, lest we offend them, go to the sea, cast in a hook, take the fish that comes up first. And when you have opened its mouth, you will find a piece of money. Take that and give that to them for me and for you. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, well, who then is the greatest in the, in the kingdom of heaven? The Jesus called a little child to him, set him in the midst of them. And he said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Let me read that line again to you. Listen, please. Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. Will you pray with me, please? Lord, I, I know that we can read words like this and we we kind of see a bit of what's going on and we can forget, Lord, how utterly intense what you're saying is here to tell us that unless something changes, radically changes to a complete conversion, we wouldn't even enter the kingdom of heaven. And how crazy of a thought that is, that, that there's 12 guys at least there and then some, obviously a child as well. And yet in all of these people, feeling completely safe in their place with you. They're your disciples. They've got names. They're being written into Scripture. I mean, amazing things are happening. They've been sent out. They've, they've seen all kinds of uh, miracles happen, demons cast out, and so forth. And yet, here we're looking at this situation where Jesus says, unless they radically change from the place they're at, they won't even make it in. And... I don't want I don't want anyone here to be like that. I don't want anyone here, including me, to be in this place where we just think that it's cool enough to just uh, bank on some like special moment and not really see what it is you're telling us. So God, I pray that you take us deep, deep into this situation and draw us in in a way that we understand that we get. Please, and show us, Lord, what you want to show us from this text. Still our hearts, grab our focus, commandeer us, captivate us now, Lord, and let every one of us really hear your voice here. Please. And we just pray that you would bring hope and life and clarity, even at this very moment. So get me out of your way. I trust that every moment that will be up here will be a moment you've ordained and you can shut me up anytime you need to. You can finish this when you need to. But don't let me go a moment beyond or before in length or depth or width. Make this perfect. And bespoke a word to each of us, please. In Jesus' name, amen. I would say today, as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible really have the final say. Uh, if we're to look here, I want you to recognize where Jesus' focus has been since being declared the Messiah back in Mark chapter, or Matthew chapter 16. 
In Matthew chapter 16, after Jesus had declared himself the Messiah, well, Peter declaring himself, he declared him, by the way, and it's important to recognize, the Son of the Most High God. And that's the title. I mean, you're the Messiah. You are the conclusion. You are the Christ, the Anointed One, the Son of the Most High God. A term, by the way, Son of God, used 46 times, by the way, in Scripture, with sons that would include us as well, then 56 times. It's a pretty big issue. And, and from that very moment, in Matthew 16:21, it says, from that time, a similar expression to what we read here with at that time, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, Suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised on the third day. Now understand what Jesus then does is you can't have the Messiah without the mission. And the mission is a very simple one. I'm about to be tortured to death for your sins. For what Peter says, and forgive me for the loose paraphrase, but in essence, basically what Peter says is that's nonsense. That's nonsense. There's no way that's going to happen. Jesus, you've gotten me. But he had told him he was about to be tortured to death. By the next chapter... Matthew chapter 17, Jesus is up on a high mountain that we know is a mount of transfiguration. And we read there, Luke tells us of the same account in 930 and 31, that behold, two men talk with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease or exodus. They spoke of, you know what they were talking about? Jesus, you are going to be tortured to death at the hands of men for the sins of mankind. That was it. Jesus heads down the hill. And if you remember, he's up there with three of his men. Peter, James, and John, and he heads down the other nine and a whole multitude of people, including some arguing scribes, are down there, and they can't cast a demon out of this boy. And in that, by the way, Jesus ultimately does, and they marvel from that. And then he says in Matthew 17:22, now, as it is, it is, actually, I tell you in Luke, um, he tells us more clearly in Luke 9, he says, right from that moment, as the people were amazed at Jesus casting this demon out, he says then in verse 44, let these words sink into your ears. For the Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. And again now, this is one, two, three, the fourth time that Jesus in one way or another has made clear he is about to be tortured to death at the hands of men for the sins of mankind. And says, but it was hidden from them. They couldn't perceive it. And then we read this dispute. In the Matthew account, we read that once Jesus had gotten to Galilee. Now, the mount that they were at wasn't Galilee, so now they had down into Galilee. And as they had into Galilee from this high mountain, we read in chapter 17, verse 22, as they were staying in Galilee, Jesus said, The Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him. And on the third day, he will be raised up. And they were exceedingly sorrowful. So that is one, two, three, four, fifth time now he's told them, I'm going to be tortured to death at the hands of men for the sins of mankind. It seems pretty evident in our small chapter and a half so far that Jesus' focus has been total sacrifice. His focus is the cross, the very thing that Peter in essence said was nonsense. But then we get to the guys. And again, Luke told us that they couldn't see. It was kept from them from seeing so they could perceive it. And again, that's Luke 9, verse 45. Interesting, the next verse, 46, says, Then a dispute arose among them about who would be the greatest. Do you know what kept them from seeing the way that Jesus needed them to see? The cross that was essential. The cross that was critical was themselves. It wasn't like God kept them from seeing it was offered for them to see. It wasn't like they were, God was robbing them of some great blessing of understanding or insight. Truth be told, if we can be honest, they were so wrapped up in themselves, they just couldn't see how critical the cross was. We read in Mark 9, just like we do here, that he came to Capernaum and he was in the house. Now, Capernaum, by the way, in the house tells me something because it isn't in a house, but the, that's a definite article. And that tells me something interesting. What house would be identified as the house? Well, there's been one house Jesus has done a great deal of things in, and that's Simon Peter's house, which is in Capernaum. Which makes this an even more interesting conversation to me. It doesn't tell us that it was Simon Peter's house, but the fact that it says the leads me to believe that's probably where it was taking place. And they had been arguing on the road on the way down. 
Five different occasions, in one man or another, Jesus has told them he was about to be tortured to death at the hands of men for the sins of mankind. And they were busy arguing over who would be greatest. Is where Jesus' total focus was the cross, the critical cross and total sacrifice. Well, their focus was self-exaltation and self-importance. And please understand, this is why we can't run through this text to get to the next portion. Because the last thing we read, by the way, I remind you, was when tax men asked Simon Peter about taxes for the temple. Uh, by the way, that's a half of a shekel. Jesus then asked Simon Peter about the situation, and then Jesus teaches Simon Peter the no offense imperative. Don't you find it strange that I have to pay a cover charge to get into my own house? That would be like the queen having to pay the tour fare to get into Buckingham Palace. It seems a little strange, don't you think? But then Jesus also sends Simon Peter to fish. And then the taxes are fished by Simon Peter. Then the taxes are paid by Simon Peter. So the people came to Simon Peter. Jesus came to Simon Peter. Jesus taught Simon Peter. Jesus sent Simon Peter. Simon Peter went fishing. Simon Peter caught a fish. Simon Peter got taxes. Simon Peter paid the taxes. And then we read, at that time, the disciples are arguing over who would be greatest. Do you wonder if he was somehow an instigant into this conversation? Now think about how silly the conversation would look. Well, you don't understand. Which one of you? Imagine Peter saying, which one of you? had ever heard Jesus say, blessed are you, even that far. Nonetheless, blessed are you because the Father has revealed this to you. Which one of you? You can imagine them saying, yeah, well, which one of us did Jesus ever say, get behind me, Satan, to? And then Peter, James, and John, yeah, but which ones of you went up on the hill with Jesus? Well, remember, they weren't even allowed to even share that information yet. But if they had, could you imagine? Well, which one of you did God ever say shut up to? And imagine as we come down, you guys couldn't even cast out this demon. And you really think you're going to be greatest in all of this? And they argue. Who's most equipped? Who's going to lead? And what we read is Jesus comes into the house, so there's much more of an intimate setting. And he says, so guys, what were you arguing about? Now the word is digalagamai, like dialogue. So I get the idea of the word. They were dialoguing. They were having a heated discussion. And they were dialoguing about the fact. And now, now, there's only two ways to take this. Let's be honest. There's the way of taking it of saying, well, I, oh, no, 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 no. I'm not going to be the greatest. You are going to be the greatest. Oh, no, 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 not me, you. Or I'm the greatest and you're not. Now, which one of those two do you think these guys are arguing over? Well, contextually, what we find is it won't only take but a couple chapters by chapter 20 that James and John are going to send mom to talk to Jesus to try to maneuver them into his right and left hand. So it kind of makes it sound like really they think they personally are the best. I'm the greatest of all time. Now, ironically, they're trying to ask Jesus who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, who the greatest in the kingdom of heaven is. But he's not going to say himself here. You know, you've probably heard the joke about how the church went together and gave a, bought this little, you know, pin that said the most humble pastor that ever lived. And then they took it away from him once he wore it. Well, you get the idea here. They're asking Jesus, you know, who's the greatest? And, and imagine how Jesus is looking. And there's different places to take that. Jesus could say, how are you guys possibly arguing over that? Which one of you has been raising the dead lately? You know, which one of you has been having all of these crazy miracles happen? But Jesus doesn't even play that because if he did, he would have disqualified them from even wanting something else. And this is where this whole thing starts here. Please hear me, beloved. Installed within every one of us it is, a, is a desire to be important, a desire to be great. That's not a bad thing. The problem is, what is the operating system? What is the center of your universe? You see, this was what happened all the way back in the garden. And please hear me. That the very appetites which we have we're intended to be met with God at our center. And if they're not met with God at our center, well, there's only one person to put there, and that's ourselves, or so we think. 
And then we'll put other things there in its stead to help feed these needs that we believe we have, that we're appetites that are supposed to be met in Christ. So, so hear me in this. The enemy is talking to Eve in Genesis. And as the enemy is talking to Eve in Genesis 3, there, every tree had already been pleasant to the sight and good for food. Please don't miss that. Every one of them already looked beautiful and every one of them tasted awesome. That was not missing. But there's one tree we read that was also desirable to make one wise. And notice what the enemy said. He said, on the day that you eat of it, you'll be like God. Now, he's not talking to Adam. He's talking to Eve. And get the idea is he's talking to Eve. He's like, aren't you tired of being number two? Aren't you tired of having to follow your husband and help your husband? Isn't that such, I mean, aren't you tired? Don't you feel like you have no identity? I mean, who in the world are you? Helper. Oh, man. How, who wants to be helper? I mean, who gets, who gets applause for being helper? I mean, think about what you could be. And if you do this, you'll be like God and you'll be in front of him. You get to cut in the queue. You can be number one. It's all about you, baby. And so when she takes it, understand what she is biting into more than just the fruit. What she's biting into is the whole concept that she should be the center of her universe. And Adam will do the same then. Once we become the center of our universe, everything changes. I mean, there was a fear, but understand when Christ is the center, when God is the center, fear is not a bad thing. Because what that means is I can be small and that's okay because my focus isn't on me. And so what I can do is know that the person that I'm focusing on loves me, invented me, created me, and has this plan for me to lavish love on me. And when I look at that, I think, oh, man, that's what I want. And that's fine. And I can look and be small, and he could be huge, and that's so good. But the moment I take my eyes and I put me in the center of that, fear becomes another thing altogether. That means I'm small, and that's bad, because now I'm not big enough to tackle the situation. I'm not big enough to handle the situation. I'm not big enough. I'm not strong enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not cute enough. And I'm not enough. And once I'm in the center of that, that very thing that God created so that I can look and go, wow, God, how beautiful. Now I look and go, oh, man, I'm so small. That's the problem. And then I look at this. And I realize that there's somewhere inside of us God really put, I mean, think about this, the one who flung the stars into space, the one who painted it colors that we're still trying to catch up with God on, the one who's done these amazing things with the seas and created animals that look like, who in the world, like God just took parts and stuck them together and put them somewhere outside of Australia and made them dangerous. I mean, all the things that God has done, so much of which we have yet to discover, they've just discovered, I know that, uh, that Dan Taylor will love this, 121 new breeds of spiders in Australia. Want to go? Mission trip? You and me? All right. Uh, I mean, in kinds that are like the size of your head, and then there are ones that are like the size of the digit of your pinky. I mean, they're crazy. I mean, and here's the crazy thing. I don't know how long, you know, the people have actually lived on Australia and however you want to play that, but the point is, is that they, that, wow, I've never seen you before. Where have you been? Now, now, think that through for a second. We're still trying to catch up with God and all these things. We still can't get to the bottom of the sea because we're still, that's too much pressure for us to get there. And you've got his things tucked into those places we're still discovering. And yet in all of that, the one who makes these things so magnificent has created you. And understand, the one thing he signed his name to more than anything is you. His signature is on you. There is a greatness God has placed, not just with us collectively, but individually. There's a Claudia-shaped greatness created for Claudia, an Norma-shaped greatness for Norma. And you get it. And here's the scary part. Is that somewhere in that, we're going to make a decision for everything that we do from this point on of what we want to put in the middle. If we put God in the middle then my desire will be to be great for God. I want to do everything to the best of my ability to glory Him, to glorify Him, to give Him honor. And I want to be a great worker, the best worker that would get there early and leave late because I want my boss to look and go, wow, what makes you different? And you could say, Jesus. 
I want to be the kind one that cleans up afterwards. And I want to be the one that's, that's careful and caring, that will listen to someone that no one else will listen to, and to care for someone that is really very needy. And the things that will happen where the Lord puts them on my radar, because I want to do it, and I want to be the greatest I can be, because I want to give God the greatest offering I can give Him, because He's at the center. And there becomes the point of being great. But on the other side of it, if I put me in the great, in the center of this universe then all of a sudden greatness changes because now all I need to do is be greater than you. Because now the issue of wanting to be great now is comparing to you guys. And as I compare to you, I don't have to actually be very good as long as you guys are, are, are worse. And the problem in all of that is, is that what I have to do is push you down and push me up to be there. And the problem with these guys at this moment is they're really stuck in that second place. Can you imagine that when you put you in the middle of things, this is what happens is all of a sudden somebody's better at something you think you do well and you don't instantly don't like them or you're instantly critical of them. Isn't that sad? You can look and go like they could do that. I could do that better. And why are we doing that? Because to be honest, at that moment, we're the center of our universe. And because we're at the center, do you know what happens? As we look at this and I realize that's what these guys are, is they're arguing and they took an appetite God gave us and they warped it. Just like every appetite God's given us gets warped by the world because the enemy knows that these appetites are good things and can only be bent in Christ. And when Jesus is at the center, please hear me, the moment he's at the center and everything changes and it takes on a color. And it, by the way, we find ourselves de-burdened to run, because we don't have to run the universe. Because strangely enough, the one who actually runs the universe is running the universe, and we're okay with that. At this time, Peter has just paid taxes for Jesus and him. He's fished to do so. And those leaders, they came to him to ask. And at this point, they're arguing. And Jesus, by the way, I want to remind you, at this point, he is now on the latter half of his ministry, his physical ministry. In other words, they've already been with him for a couple of years. And imagine looking, going, how long have you guys, how long are we going to be with you that you're getting the core thing wrong? Imagine if you spent your entire life studying medicine just so you could kill people. You figure out the worst ways, the most torturous ways, and so forth. You've been to school the whole time and you studied under the greatest doctor, the greatest physician who has, by the way, never lost a patient and who has always somehow have this brilliance to be able to unequivocally diagnose the person properly and be able to give them then what is necessary to see them cured. And that particular person now takes on one pupil, one student, and you become that student. And that person has been driven. And the reason why they've tried so hard and they've worked so, so uh, tirelessly is because they have such a love for their patients that all they want to see is them well. And, they're, and they've, they've, they've done all of this extensive, exhaustive research just to know them implicitly so they could really minister to every need. And then you go into this situation and gather all of this information so then you could become some sick and twisted torturer of human beings. You can imagine the teacher looking and going, is this really why you've been gathering this information the whole time? At this time. But notice the disciples don't just say who is the greatest. There's this interesting word then. In the verse 1 it says who then is the greatest. As if someone had been disqualified. As if someone, we assume, assume, well, clearly not that guy. So who then? And if you're really trying to be the number two guy or somehow you think you'll be the number one guy even, as strange as that would be, and somebody gets disqualified, don't you applaud that? Now, of course, we see that as we saw the run for the prime minister here. We saw individuals propping themselves up. and We saw individuals toss their darts and ultimately people bowing out one by one until, of course, they made her uh, was put into the front place. But you can watch them. We watch this in America and it's, by the way, just so you know, it's, much, it's just as much of a circus for us as it is for you guys. The whole thing is an embarrassment, in my opinion. Uh, and, and, and all of that, it's like the more that someone falls, the more the other side applauds because they're so busy trying to propel themselves forward. 
at the hurt of another individual, that's actually a great thing if they're your opponents. Until you start reading those reports of people like in the Special Olympics and these places where there's, there is some form of fostered selflessness and a person that's in the lead place falls down right before the, uh, the finish line and another person that would have won picks them up and carries them across because they feel like they've already deserved it anyways. And you start to see this and we're so humbled as we think, man, where are we as Christians compared to someone like that? Would we be the one that's like, in your face? And then we'd drag them across when everyone else was done. I mean, where would we go with that? And they're like, well, who then is the greatest? I mean, Jesus has already told them about being great. Matthew 5.19, he says, you hear the commands and do them, you'll be called great. When it talked to the person that had the rich young ruler, tell them if you want to be perfect, take it to its proper end. Well, then sell all you have and, and give it to the poor and then come and follow me. That's Matthew 19:21. He tells us if you really want to be great, you can't be like the Gentiles in Matthew 10, uh, 20, verses 25 and 26, where you're busy propping yourself over everyone if you really want to be great then you have to get, you're going to have to get under them, not over them. But if we really want to see how the heart of this whole thing runs, do this with me for a moment. If you keep your finger where it is so you don't lose it, but you open your Bible right in the middle, chances are you'll find the book of Psalms, and then you take it to the right, the next big book will be the book of Isaiah. Go to Isaiah chapter 14 for a moment, would you please? This is what it says in chapter 14, verse 12 of Isaiah. How you have fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you were cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations. Because, for, you said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. You think that that idea of you could, you'll be like God was tried first by him before he actually threw it at Eve? But notice what he says. I will ascend. I will exalt. I will sit above. I will ascend above. I will be like do you see in all of this? There's a comparison to everything saying everything else is going to be below me. And in the most, I'll call myself equal with God, the most high. And don't you find it interesting? I'll be like the most high. Most high by the, by the definition of being most high, you can't be like him. Or he can't be the most high. This becomes, if you will, the anthem of the enemy. It's about me, man. I'm first. You wonder why he fell? He just put himself in the center of the universe and he's been trying to do it to us ever since. Back in our text then in Matthew chapter 18, the disciples come and Jesus is picking away at them and he's like, hey you guys, so what were you arguing about back there? What was your dialogue about? Which tells me, by the way, that they weren't trying to talk loud enough for Jesus to hear. And you get that because if they did, they knew that Jesus would squelch it from the get-go. But they're talking in a way it's like, oh, talk loud enough, right? And finally, Jesus isn't going to let him get away with it. But I think it's kind for him to kind of tuck them outside privately where they may be able to hear. And he's like, so what were you guys talking about? Uh, we don't really want to tell you. And he's finally like, oh, well, is that what you really want to talk about is who is the greatest? Now, do you think that the disciples maybe thought Jesus had a name in mind? Like of the 12, they give them 12 options, by the way. And of the 12 options they give Jesus, did you notice he picked option 13, the option they didn't give Jesus? That's a really interesting point, because often we do this. We give God, here's our A, B, and C. We've thought the problem through. Here's our options. Uh, which one do you want, Jesus? A, B, or C? And Jesus says, D. And you say, I didn't give you a D. And Jesus goes, I know. I guess you're going to have to trust me. I'm smarter, and I know what I'm doing more than you do here on this. And with this, it tells us it wasn't just the 12 of them. It tells us this, if this was Simon Peter's house, could this have been Simon Peter's child? We don't know. We don't have any name listed for this kid. But we do know he's small enough to be carried. 
We read in verse 2 then that Jesus called a little child to him and set him in the midst of them. It tells us in the Mark account, in Mark 9.36, he took a little child, the word for child is paidon, and he set him in the midst of them, and when he had taken him up in his arms, he said to them, Now, put that picture for a moment. We read in the Luke account, Luke 9.47, that Jesus perceived their thoughts, same word, uh, of their heart. And this is when he set the child before them. So Jesus is already aware of what they're thinking. And he's asking them, giving them a chance to man up on it, right? But now, how do you take a child in your arms? Now, does this child have any relationship with Jesus? Does Jesus have this natural, uncanny ability to make kids feel at ease with him? Or does he have some form of relationship with him? But see, the one thing you may already know is that culturally, to this day in the Middle East, children are primarily carried once, I mean, when they're being nursed, clearly that's a mom deal. But after that, children are carried by dad. Now, notice this, the profundity of God's simplicity in this. Jesus calls this kid. We don't read that he runs and grabs him. We read that he calls for him. And this kid comes without pretense, without demands, without any list. He says, hey, psst. however he did it. And the child comes running. And Jesus picks him up and he holds him like a father would hold a kid, like, like hold his son. Now, put yourself in this situation for a moment. We've been arguing. Oh, great. I'm going to be the greatest. No, you're going to be the greatest. You're a tax collector like Jesus. We're going to let you. You could betray us at any given moment. We don't trust you. What about you sons of thunder? Oh, come on. You're like, Jesus is going to let the thunder callers really be the, the leaders of this thing? Really? I mean, Bartholomew, you haven't even gotten anywhere. When we don't have any verses on you yet, Bartholomew. People are going to go, uh, and figure out who you are. Jude Thaddeus, which one are you? Jude or Thaddeus? I mean, imagine the arguments that are going on in all of this. And Jesus, and he looks at him, what are you guys talking about? We're like, oh, 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 nothing. It's good. You've done that, right? You've kind of had one of those rough moments, and you're oh, like this, everything's you know, anxious. And all of a sudden, someone calls, and you're like, Hi. You know, and then, you know, Jesus is calling you on it. No, no, nothing. And Jesus looks and he goes, you really want to see what greatness looks like? You really want to see that? It's like, just come here. And a kid comes and Jesus just holds this child, this boy, in his arms. And as he holds this boy in his arms, do you think any of us are getting it yet? I mean, here we are kind of staring at Jesus, waiting for him to like, just list off a name. Imagine he's like, well, Dan Taylor, duh. Which one's the greatest? Well, you guys, if you took a vote, that'd be one vote for each of you, wouldn't it? And so it says, Jesus called this little child, he put him in this. Now, what we have then is there's some form of time spent here where Jesus holds this child. I mean, it isn't like it's like the kid came running that we have some kind of great dance leap and he just like braced himself and caught him and then just started teaching. This takes some time. So we're watching, and when we get these moments, we understand the guys are heated. They're kind of hot around the collar. They've been frustrated. They've been arguing with each other. And as they've been arguing with each other, Jesus needs to slow the situation down. Similar, by the way, to John 8. Remember with a woman caught in adultery, where Jesus goes and he writes in the sand, and everyone wants to tell you what he wrote, but the Bible. And, and, and then in all of that, one thing we can see is he has to slow him down enough to hear the Spirit of God. Here's a moment where the guys are all so caught up and consumed, putting themselves in the middle, that Jesus at this moment, he's just gonna, he's gonna slow it down. He's like, Psh, come here, and he just holds this child for a moment. And I wonder if we started to wonder, did he hear our question? Is he not gonna answer it? But, but he just taught us and we didn't see it. He said, come. The child came with no demands. And then we read what Jesus teaches us. Look at verse 3. Assuredly, amen, amen. You better hear this. This is more than just a, comment, a passing statement. I say to you, are you listening? Are you hearing me? Unless you change, utterly change. The word for converted is the word strefo. 
And surafo means to turn completely away from where you are. And become as little children. You will by no other way. You'll never really enter the kingdom of heaven. Do you realize what Jesus just said? He says, unless this radically changes in you, you won't even make it. You guys are busy arguing over who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, and at this moment, none of you even qualified to go in. Is that crazy? I mean, I'd love to change this and make it simpler or softer, but I can't. Jesus has made this really clear. Do you guys realize what you're doing here? And I look at this text. I guarantee this was the last thing on their mind. If you think you're going to be the greatest over everyone else, you certainly don't think you didn't qualify. But have you noticed that that was something that started all the way back with John the Baptist? He's like, you guys have such a false sense of security because you guys think you're Jewish, that's good enough. You think your name ends in a bomb or a stein or something like that, you're safe. He says, God can take, make descendants of Abraham from these stones. You really think that's good enough? You need to totally change. You need to repent. Isn't that John the Baptist's message? And throughout Scripture, I get this idea that what's happening here is that he doesn't want you banking on something that doesn't mean a relationship. And you bank on, you know, your confirmation and you bank on your baby baptism and you bank on your family being whatever and you bank on, you know, it's like, listen, over 26 years ago, I said, I do to my wife. She said, I do back. Praise God that both, it was mutual. And in that, please understand, when I said I do, I did know this, that what I was saying was, I do commit to saying I do for the rest of my life. It wasn't one I do and that's good enough for the rest of life. I do commit for the rest of my life to say I do. I do commit to the rest of my life for you to be my wife. That's the point of it. Was it wasn't like I can look and go, well, I said I do back then. Isn't that enough? You know, there should be some form of relationship fostered that should develop. That's the way that works. And yet we can kind of go and say, well, I, I said this I do to God once, but I've really said I don't pretty much my whole life since. And, and understand somewhere in all of that, what the enemy really wants is for you to feel absolutely confident and secure and something that isn't that you shouldn't be secure in that false sense of security is one of the meanest and most maniacal things you can do to someone is lead to them to believe they're safe when they're not and put them in impending danger and peril simply because they're convinced they're invincible and he does that with our sin like we're convinced that we won't get caught or that there will be no repercussions or whatever. He does that with the way that we swerve from God and it really won't be that big of a deal. Come on, it's just a little thing anyways. You know, and it's like, you know, and it's, it's amazing how we get these, these places where we feel like, oh, it doesn't matter. I'm sure I'll get out of this. Isn't that Samson's deal? He was so convinced he was invincible that he went down to the last thing and when his head was shaved, you know, you get the idea here. That he was, it says that he woke up and he was just convinced that he was going to be able to get out of this just like any other time. But he had no idea the Spirit of God had left him. And we feel so safe. And look at, I'm not here to make us doubt what Scripture says. The Scripture says, if we confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and is, is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we'll be saved. That's Romans 10, Romans 10, 9 and 10. But what does it do? See, the whole point of the book of James is that. James is like, look at, you say you believe, but what change has it done to you? What difference? How does it look? It was not like James is like, we need a, wor- a faith plus works. He's like, we need a faith that works. He says, you say you believe and you think that's good enough? He says, even demons say they believe. Do you think they're going to heaven? Saying you believe is not enough. Jesus didn't die for you so you could say you believe in him like Santa Claus. And Jesus looks at these guys and goes, you know what, you guys? 
You need to change, and you need to change right now. And this is a real friend, a real friend that will tell you when real change needs to happen. Oh, it's okay. It's just a little sin. Go ahead. Let's keep it a secret, and let's tuck it under the carpet, and let's not let it be dealt with. Let's just kind of let it fester. It'll kind of go away. It doesn't go away. Ignoring things like that is like ignoring your teeth. They will go away, but nothing good comes from that. The problem doesn't go away. The teeth do. So please understand here, Jesus is presenting this child to us, and he says, you have everything to learn from this moment. This moment should be one of the most crucial moments in your entire life. Because what this child is doing is what you're not. And so this week I've laid awake Lord, what am I missing? What's in my life that needs to change? What does this look like? And of course, he starts me in these places like Revelation 20, where he talks about how you have to be written into the book of life. And if you're not written into the book of life, you're thrown into the lake of fire. And the book of life, I recognize, is a place you have to be born into some place for them to write your name in the book of life. It's the registry for that community. I get that. And I understand why Jesus tells us we need to be born again in John 3, because that's the way that has to work. But I love the fact that he goes beyond that to the point of telling us that it's not just that. The reason we're sons of God is not because what happened is we became little gods, is that he adopted us. We get that, by the way, all the way in the book of Romans, chapter 8, verse 15. When he tells us, you didn't re- receive the spirit again of bondage to fear. He said, you received the spirit of adoption. By which you cry out, Daddy, Abba, Father. And Jesus says, unless you're born again, you'll, you'll never see the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. He told us in Matthew 19:14. by the way, we'll see that soon. Let the little children come to me. Don't forbid them, for such is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God looks like this. And I get that's probably why the Renaissance painted all these little naked babies with wings, you know, uh, trying to make them because heaven must be that, because such is the kingdom of God. But I think that they've radically missed the point. See, the point is this. Imagine, if you will, that you went with us to China and we visited the Philip Hayden Foundation. Orphanages, several of them. Special needs children. Children that would have been cast off under other circumstances. That now, by the way, through the God's grace and through the tireless efforts of these individuals, they're serving children. And you had the, the opportunity to go and, and to take every one of those children with you. You had the unlimited resources. And by the way, you'd need unlimited resources. You'd have to sell a house in Chelsea just for a couple. But in that, understand, here as you're, as you're doing this and you walk in and you've been there and you've, you've presented yourself and you've been presenting yourself, you've been presenting yourself as faithful, you've been presenting yourself as caring, you've presented yourself as trustworthy, and you are all of those things. And then all of that, and all of a sudden, you've done everything except one thing, and that is everything is closed. The deal is closed for every child there except one thing, and that's to let the child decide. And you're like, look at this. is I want to love you. I want to care for you. I want to invest my entire life in you and dump my life and my love upon you and see you grow and strengthen and mature. I want to see you thrive. And the offer comes up and there will be those children that will run. They would jump at the offer. And then there would be others that are like, well, I don't know, man. I kind of like it here. Why do you like it here? Because I get to do it my way here. And I know that if I go to your house, that would change. I'd have to submit to your authority. I'd have to take your provision over my provision. I'd have to make sure that the protection was yours, not mine. Uh, and I, by the way, the big one, too, is that I know you've got a purpose. And in the Middle East, every parent, by the way, every father has a purpose to which every boy that he brings in gets brought into that purpose. The family business, if you will. I really don't like what you do. I don't want to do that. I'd rather stay here. What's in it for me? Is it enough? Well, that child wouldn't come. And there's the point. You see, in this situation, we are the God of the universe, the Father of heavenly lights, the one who, by the way, calls things that weren't and makes them come to be, who makes, who makes every good gift comes from him. And he offers this to every human being, and he says, listen, 
I want you to be mine. Aren't you tired of being an orphan? Aren't you tired of being that? Aren't you tired of trying to fend for yourself and carry the weight of the world on your shoulders and to fight and to struggle and to strive just to get somewhere, just to feel beat back again and to feel like you're sliding back down the hill? Don't you, aren't you tired of that weight on you and feeling like everything's underwater and you, the gravity's upon you and if you don't make it happen, it's not going to happen. And aren't you tired of banging your head against the wall because you're... You can't figure it out. You're tired of living in fear because you can't protect yourself from everything. You're tired of feeling like if you don't make it happen, you're dead. You're tired of that? So just come. Don't tell me what you have to offer me. Don't tell me how I'm going to be blessed by your, the gifts you've, you have to take with you. Just Come. And let me hold you. Let me carry you. Let me make you mine. And he looks at a bunch of guys that are so opposite of that at this moment. He looks like if you don't do this, you'll never really come. The term that he uses here, by no means enter, and this is verse 3. It was the time Ais Erkumai. Ais, by the way, means into. Erkumai means to come. You'll never come in. Now understand, what this doesn't say, Jesus says, unless you're converted like a child, you'll never be allowed entrance. That's not what it says. It says, unless you're willing to humble yourself like this child humbles himself, you're actually never going to come in yourself. You won't choose to come in. The invitation is there and you will not come in. And the worst part is, What you'll do instead is decide that this property also belongs to heaven, even though God hadn't claimed it. And you'll say, God, you need to change your rules because clearly these are my demands. How do we do that and call him Lord? Culturally, you're probably aware of the fact a child has no rights. In Galatians chapter 4, verse 1, and I'm almost done now. You can see why we only have five verses. It tells us by this in Galatians 4, 1. Now, I say that the heir, 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 if you will, the one that's the one who inherits all from the parents, the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he's the master of all. He's like, when you're a little kid, you don't make your own decisions. You have limits and prescribed things and expectations and things, but they're set by your parents. I submit to my father's protection, his provision, his presentation, his purpose. I get all of that. I surrender my feigned rights for his care. But if I don't do that, you know what that tells me? That tells me that the first thing that happens is I recognize is that I need to go and give myself to the father. Because being a born again Christian and all I think about is being sort of the romantic marriage between me and, and God. Well, that's kind of a weird thing as a baby. But I understand why it tells us in First Peter, as newborn babes, do you want desire the pure milk of the word that you would grow thereby? He's like, like a little baby. There's a specific prescription for your diet. And it is the pure milk of the word, not just a bunch of messages and sermons and things. Though those are cool. I wouldn't want to shoot myself in the foot. But man, getting in the word and just letting God feed you. So verse 4, he says, therefore, whoever humbles himself. The term is to bring yourself low. But listen to this term. Whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And I get the idea that he's pointing to this little child and he goes, did you realize how humble this child was? He didn't tell me to come to him. He didn't give me any demands. I said, come and he came and I carried him. That's it. Verse 5, he says, therefore, whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. This is our last verse. Did you notice that's a dangling modifier? And what I mean by that is a kind of this like this. Does it pertain then to receiving a little child, receiving it like this, like Jesus just did? Or does it like the little child, like this little child? To be honest, I think God purposely left it so that both could apply. Receiving a child like this child was received was received like a father receives this child. 
He received them with open arms. The care, but notice the one qualifier is in Jesus' name. But also to receive a little child like this little child. To receive a child who will come. Who is willing to come. So first I realize I'm received, I'm adopted, I'm wanted. But second, then I realize that I should take that same thing and offer it to others. Now needless to say, this would be a very easy time to speak about adoption. But there are going to be needs that are going to be met in this world. And to be honest, I wouldn't want to limit it to that. Oh, yeah. (laughs) For instance, now please hear me on this. That God really wants us to be able to look after children because, to be honest, children aren't being looked out after otherwise. I'm going to go in. That's a reminder, by the way, to turn off your alarm. Or your, uh, anyways, that was my phone. Whoever receives a little child like this tells me that, that we really should be looking. And by the way, have you noticed how hard the world is going after children? Do you know, in, in Israel, by the way, you can share Jesus with you. It's not against the law to evangelize, though they could try to make it look like that. But there are two things that they say are against the law. One is you can't give goods to people and then preach Jesus to them. So, you know, we do. We preach Jesus first, then give him stuff. Uh, second, though, is you're not allowed to preach Jesus to minors. You're not allowed to share Jesus with children. So, we can share, I can share Jesus, though, with Sam in front of children. That's okay. I can actually say to Bruno, Bruno, by the way, you're aware of the fact that there's against the law for me to tell things to somebody under 18 near some children that are teenagers, and you know what teenagers are going to do at that moment. What? What? What are you not allowed to share with us? Funny you ask. I am not allowed to share that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. I am not allowed to share that every man is a sinner and in need of saving. And I am not allowed to share that, that God sent that Savior in Jesus the Christ. And I'm not allowed to share that if you if accept the gift of Jesus Christ's death for your sins and resurrection, that he'll make you a brand new creation as you receive this gift. And that the Father wants to adopt you and make you his own. I'm not allowed to share that, but uh, it is the truth. And you get the idea in here. But the point is, is that it's like, stay away from our kids. And it's like, then we hand our kids over to people and they tell them, well, look, and now we're going to indoctrinate them and tell them that they don't even know whether they're a girl or a boy. Now we're going to tell them, that we, you know, well, any appetite's okay. It doesn't matter what you could fall in love with. It's okay because, let's face it, who is there to judge? How dare parents? Children are now, as you're probably aware of, a property of the community, not a property of the parents, so to speak, or under the leadership or governance of the parents, unless, of course, the community disagrees with you, because then, on the other hand, that's a problem. You should check the laws here about how exactly what rights a parent has for their children. And the only reason I say that is, is that we wonder how each generation is getting worse. But you realize the church has been completely vacant of really reaching out to kids. And here we are at a time, by the way, where we are in one of the weirdest places because we actually have religious education in this, in this country. You know, the crazy part is we are not inserting ourselves where we could. Kids are learning how to become radical Muslims. There's no doubt about that. They're learning how to, how to meditate. They're learning how to do all of these things that, have, that are from all kinds of other religions. But is there anyone really learning about the gospel of Jesus Christ and why Jesus is such a great offer? Could you imagine what would happen if we got into those schools? Could you imagine? What would happen is the next generation would change. And, of course, people are looking at the church and they think everyone's over 50. And you realize... To be honest, a lot of churches, that is the case. But when was the first time you heard about Jesus? When was the first time you realized that there was a choice to be made? Jesus says here, look it, it's not just about, first of all, once you realize you are received and adopted and you're cared for, everything God gives us is in abundance so that you can turn and give it to someone else. And then he turns and says, now turn and give it to someone else. Go find someone that needs that. Take a child that's like this. Go out there. Now, look, it. don't be some kind of weirdo. Don't be driving around in a van with no windows kind of thing and waiting and, and, and combing the elementary schools. Find ways to get into these things. Find ways to be able to say, hey, look it, you know, and, and if you want, we will back you if we can in such a way. It's like, let's get you into the schools. Let's get the gospel out to these children. And then let's see what the Lord does. But Jesus here is telling us, by the way, 
that pure and undefiled religion, James told us, by the way, that pure and undefiled religion before God is this, in 127, before God the Father, and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep yourself unpolluted from the world. Is in the simplest sense, I want you helping the helpless and staying clean. And there's something the Lord may drive you, by the way, to the widow. And praise God. And God's like, well, well, wait a minute. Does that mean you're actually being opportunistic with the vulnerable? Might I say, yeah. If we're looking through the lens of Jesus being the center of it all, we'll look for any opportunity we can to get Jesus to people. And if somebody's vulnerable to receive Jesus Christ, I want them to hear his name. I want them to know that they can receive this and they can get the gift of Jesus Christ to be transformed. And they can come and receive the loving arms of the Father. And then the last thing as we bring this into this, please hear me, is that Jesus, the greatest in the kingdom of God, shows us that throughout his entire tenure here on earth. Is what he does is he shows us the relationship between him and the Father is a very intimate one and a tender one. And it's interesting what Jesus does. Because when a little child that's that age is scared, they cling. When a child is hungry, they cling. When a little child is insecure, they cling. They cling to the parent. And this is what we can learn. And you know what happened when Jesus was afraid? When Jesus was overwhelmed in the garden, he clung to the Father. And when he was hanging on the cross in a very vulnerable position, he clung to the Father and said, Father, unto you I give you my spirit. I surrender my spirit. Do you get it? Then in all of this, beloved, please, it's like the very thing Jesus would say, is, look, you can't bear fruit without clinging. You've got to cling. And the Father, by the way, his arms are open wide. You're no longer an orphan if you're saying yes And it's not just saying yes to Jesus. It's saying yes to the Father who wants to adopt you and then make you a part of the family business. He's going to carry you, strengthen you, develop you, and then use you. How amazing is that? As we go to prayer today, when was the last time you thanked the Father for his love for you? Men, whether you've had a godly father or not, have you asked God to make you one? Now, if you're not married or any of that, I'm not asking you to become a father that quickly. But I do find it interesting that even as we mature in Christ, it was children, young men, and fathers. We become fathers spiritually too. And for that, I pray that every man here would mature to that. Ladies, God mature you. Can you find that safety and security in the arms of your heavenly Father? Take his abundant mercy and then offer the love and reach out, taking that love to those who are so desperate for him. Because the one thing I had to learn when I became a father was that I don't love you like God does. Because I would never let my children be tortured just to redeem you. So thank God he's God. And that was when I realized how amazing the love is from his perspective, not just Jesus's. To surrender his son just so that we could be adopted. Incomprehensible. Incomprehensible? Will you pray with me, please? Lord, I want to thank you for this amazing text. And I don't want us to be in this weird place of false security we're somehow in all of this we think that we could just sort of make a haphazard indifferent little statement but have no real purpose or meaning behind it and think that's enough please don't let that be the case today don't let us bank on something that is really dumb obviously if we were to be adopted things would change they would be changing in a very radical way. We would want to move into your home and let you be our king. Let you be the one who leads us. And I pray for that for every one of us, Lord. pray that we could understand that today. And I pray, Lord, for everyone here, and myself included, that we could so embrace your love 
but it's so radically embrace your love. Let you wrap your arms around us and carry us and develop us. Give us a heart for the family business to seek and to save that which is lost. That we would be able to say, Jesus, even as you said, I always do what pleases the Father. I can't even fathom living a life like that, but I would love to. I recognize the only reason you sent Jesus to die on the cross is so I could be yours. Rose him again to give me a new life where I could be yours. You poured your spirit in me so that I could walk with you and and develop a relationship with you and and become more like you so that the world could see that there was a God who loves people and wants people. And now, Lord, I pray that you would take every one of us and inspire us to come properly, humble, not with demands, but with lives laid down saying, God, take us where you are. And as we sing one final song, Lord, I pray today, as we just, we've confessed Jesus as our Lord and Savior. We've confessed his payment for us on the cross. And God, we just want to tell you today, God, make us people who celebrate that walk. And let us know the safety and the security we have in you, Father. But may it be that your will be done, not ours on earth, even as it is in heaven. Lord, please, as we sing this song, oh Lord, please make us people who really look like the Father, like you. In Jesus' name, amen.
love, Lord, and issue it to others, because you've given us an abundance. May we recognize even today how beautiful, rich, and great that love is that we would be called your children. And make us now voices from the adoption agency saying, there's room for more at the Father's table. May we freely come the way you call us to come. And then may we freely invite others to do so as well. In Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you, saints. Go be a blessing.